This is ASHA Voices. I'm J.D. Gray. On this episode of the podcast, we welcome speakers from the upcoming Research Symposium on Hearing, part of the 2022 ASHA Convention, Laura Coco and Carrie Neiman. Focusing on healthcare disparities and issues of access, these researchers share stories of innovative ways to meet hearing needs. Critical to both speakers' research is the use of community health workers. These are trusted members of communities who can assist in helping clinicians reach those in need of their services. From telepractice to the use of community partnerships, guests discuss research into meeting unaddressed hearing loss. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Find opportunities for reflection and growth with these one-sheet resources at on.asha.org slash cc. First, we'll hear from Laura Coco, an audiologist and assistant professor in speech-language hearing sciences at San Diego State University. We're going to be talking about access to audiology, access to healthcare, and healthcare disparities as a part of this conversation. And to begin, before I ask Laura about her research project that involves community health workers, I asked her to give a quick overview of general challenges for audiology that relate to geography, access, and healthcare disparities. A big part of my program of research focuses on rural populations. And this is important for audiologists because we tend to be concentrated in urban locations. And actually, we tend to be more focused in cities where there are AUD programs, which makes sense, right? We go to school in a city and we graduate and then we stay there. And while that's great on one hand, it's not great for a lot of populations of rural communities who have to drive, you know, an hour plus to reach a clinic. So we did a study that focused on Arizona and we've kind of plotted out where are the audiologists across the state and then where is kind of population density. And we found that audiologists are concentrated to urban cities. So in Arizona, that was Phoenix and Tucson, and patients would have to travel either less than a mile if they lived in Phoenix or over 100 miles. If you can imagine putting yourself in the shoes of a person with hearing loss who is kind of on the fence about getting a hearing test or getting hearing aids, and then you put this extra barrier in front of them of having to drive 100 miles and maybe they don't have a car and they would have to ask someone for a ride. That's some huge barriers to put in front of them. One strategy that we've used is telehealth. So telehealth removes that, or at least minimizes it significantly, the barrier of distance. And so the audiologist is in one location. They can stay in that urban area and the patient can stay in their community and then they're connected over the internet. The research project that Laura is describing is called Conexiones. Laura says it combines the use of telepractice strategies and the use of community health workers, which she calls on-the-ground experts. Conexiones allowed audiologists to connect remotely with a community in an Arizona border town. So it was about an hour and a half south of the University of Arizona, where we were located. But the towns are really connected. There's a lot of travel back and forth 
a lot of connection. People who live in that border town go to the University of Arizona or work there. So they seem far away, but they are culturally connected. And actually, the town of Tucson, where the university is, is known as a border town, even though it's an hour and a half away. So the, the town in which the research took place, there were no audiologists in that town. So you'd have to travel an hour and a half to get to the nearest audiologist. And the motivation for doing this study really came from research that had been done even before I came onto this project, which identified that there is this importance in that community of hearing, but an absence of services. I was struck by hearing Laura mention that in the town, hearing health was a priority, but there weren't audiologists to meet that need. And I wanted to learn more. Yeah, that came out of focus groups and interviews with people in that town and providers. Health in general is a priority in that community. And if you ask someone, if it was identified that you had hearing loss, would you want to do something about it? They would say yes, you know, in general. But given that there were no permanent practice locations in town, it's not something that would be immediately at the top of their mind. And providers weren't necessarily referring people all the time because there's not a convenient location to refer them to. And this town is not unique in that way. There are rural towns all over the U.S. that have no local practices in which providers are considering that to be a barrier and potentially not referring people because they're thinking this person's not going to drive an hour to, to get to an audiologist, but there are solutions. There are strategies. One, like I said, is telehealth. The other is partnering with community health workers. And in this community, and like I said, there are many like them, it was important to have both community health workers and teleaudiology because the community health workers are the bridge between either the researchers and the people in the community or the clinicians or both. So they help, you know, bridge in terms of trust. We're not from that community. We don't know kind of the best way to approach certain things. And the community health workers do. They're the experts in that. And, and I think that once we built trust with community health workers, that was then an important step in, in gaining trust with the community members. I asked Laura to tell me a little bit more about the project. I wanted to know, once it was up and rolling, how were the community health workers and telepractice combining to meet this town's hearing care needs? One thing to mention is that this project happened before the pandemic. And before the pandemic, telepractice was telehealth. Not everyone knew what that word meant, what it referred to exactly. And now it's it's commonplace, which is fantastic. But I'm just going to briefly mention what we're referring to here. So we're all on the same page, but this project involves the synchronous delivery of hearing aid services over telehealth, which means the audiologist is at one location and the patient and a facilitator is at another location. And in real time, the hearing aids are being fitted and adjusted and verified over the internet using remote desktop sharing technology, basically. And in this project, that patient site facilitator was a community health worker, 
then we had a comparison group in which they were not a community health worker. And what we were looking at is to what extent could the community health workers be trained and comfortable and kind of experts in that role as a facilitator. In that role, they're putting the headphones on the patient, putting the real ear probe tube microphone in the patient's ears, making them comfortable, kind of orienting them to the space. And so we trained them on those things. And then, like I said, in real time, the audiologist fit the hearing aids. And we were looking at you know, patient satisfaction and hearing aid benefit. And I was a, um, not quite sure how patients, participants would react to being fit remotely over telehealth. And, you know, in this case, in Conexiones, it went so smoothly. They talked directly to the screen. They were comfortable. They were at ease. The community health worker carried out all of the hands-on duties that they were trained to do. There were technical snafus, you know, like anything, of course. We were in rural America where the internet can sometimes fail you, but fortunately, there's always someone on site. We had an IT person. We had a big team. It went pretty smoothly, and everyone was very happy with their hearing aids and wore them as much as you could expect. Laura's work uses community health workers and telepractice to reach a community that otherwise was lacking access to hearing health care. And near the end of our conversation, she shared a few of her takeaways from when the project concluded. In the process of the project, we trained the community health workers and the non-community health worker facilitators on these duties that I mentioned. So putting the headphones on, orienting the patient to the space, and It sounds pretty simple, but when those duties are so specific to audiology, it takes time for that training. And then that training has to be maintained because like I said, community health workers have other roles. They're doing cancer support groups and health fairs and other things. So you take them three weeks away from audiology and they need to be refreshed on this role. So one big takeaway is the need for a structured training that is able to be kind of refreshed and maintained over time. So I guess it's the importance of training. And another is just the vast number of people that audiology is not reaching. I I knew that before, but it's reinforced every time I do a project like this. We had a lot of people who showed up for recruitment and engagement for this study who wanted to enroll. And, you know, we had to limit it due to the scope and the timeline of the study. People who were interested kind of throughout the study who wanted to participate. It was a randomized control trial, so that wasn't possible due to the protocol. So people were, one, interested in research that had a goal of improving access to care. And two, there's just a lot of people who are not accessing the traditional route of audiology care. And there are ways that we can improve that. I think we're on the verge of making some big improvements, one with the -the over-the-counter bill and two with telehealth just becoming more widespread. 
Laura said this project took place before the pandemic, and now people are much more familiar and more comfortable with telepractice. I asked Laura if her reflection on this research and on this project changed in light of the way that the world has changed over the past two to three years. That's really interesting. Um, It has changed. When I used to talk about telehealth before the pandemic, people would look at me like I was talking about sci-fi. And now it's so normal. (laughs) The pendulum has swung completely in the opposite direction. Now when you talk about telehealth, I think people just roll their eyes in boredom. Like it's so normal. And I think that there's a gap actually. People think that it's so normal that everyone's doing it and that is not true. There's been wonderful, great advances. There's so many more clinicians who have kind of dipped their toe in the pool and have had experiences with it and think positively about it. And that's great. But there are still communities, rural communities and low-income communities who do not have access to care. They're not purchasing these devices that have remote care options. Those tend to be kind of the higher-end devices. And, you know, audiologists still don't get reimbursed for a lot of services that they could provide potentially via telehealth. We haven't quite solved it, and we're not we're not at 100% um, when it comes to telehealth, but we've, we've definitely come a long way in a short period of time. Laura says if you're an audiologist looking to connect with community health workers in a nearby location, you may try to connect with a clinic in that community, a university, or a federally qualified health center. And Laura adds, if you want to learn more about community health workers, look for information through the American Public Health Association. We'll put a link on the blog post for this episode at on.asher.org slash podcast. We're taking a short break. When we come back, we'll return with the second guest from the 2022 Research Symposium on Hearing, Carrie Neiman. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's updated tool, Cultural Competence Check-Ins. Cultural competence, cultural humility, and cultural responsiveness require an ongoing commitment. Invest in yourself and your clients when you use these one-page resources. Designed to help you reflect and grow, find all four cultural competence check-ins at on.asha.org cc. Joining me now is Carrie Neiman, an associate professor of otolaryngology at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Carrie's career is centered on hearing health. Carrie, welcome to ASHA Voices. Awesome. Thanks, JD. So we often talk about hearing health through the perspective of audiologists on this podcast, but you come from a different medical background. Tell me about the lens that you come to the subject with. Yeah, sure. I I would say I come with two different lenses. I'm an otologist, so I'm a clinician and work obviously very closely with audiologists and speech language pathologists. But I think the second perspective that I bring is is really one from a public health perspective. And I think that's really the dominant one that I bring in terms of really trying to think at a big picture of how in the world are we going to try and get hearing help to as many people as possible? And, you know, of course, in that clinician setting, you know, that one-on-one interaction, that person in front of me is, is really important in terms of making sure that I am giving the best care possible to that individual. But when we switch to that public health perspective, we're really thinking, you know, how 
we can serve as many people as possible. And some of the time we can't always give that one-on-one care that many of us provide in a clinic. And we have to think maybe a little bit differently when we put on our, on our public health hat. We're also on this episode talking about the role of community health workers. I understand you've done some research involving community health workers as well. And that was part of a randomized control study called HEARS. That study was done in Baltimore. Could you talk a little bit about hearing and public health in Baltimore? Where are there needs that are not being met? I think it's similar to many urban settings as we're thinking about older adults who are aging in place. Um, and particularly if we're thinking about maybe low income older adults. And for a city like Baltimore, which is a minority majority city in that, you know, greater than 50% of the population in Baltimore City self-identify as African-American. So when we're thinking about Baltimore, we're thinking about African-American older adults in terms of aging at home and in place. And when we look nationally and we look at differences in hearing healthcare in terms of individuals who are you know, using hearing aids, we know know from nationally representative data that we see big differences by race, ethnicity, similar to kind of what we see kind of across the board in terms of disparities within healthcare, um, in that we see that within hearing healthcare, in that we see, uh, you know, obviously overall, the population of older adults with hearing loss, relatively few people use hearing aids, but those numbers are even lower when it comes to uh, racial and ethnic minority older adults in the United States, where, you know, nationally around only 10% of African-American individuals with hearing loss actually use hearing aids. And, you know, we don't have numbers necessarily specific to Baltimore, but we certainly see that in our clinical work and just from, you know, our experience in the city that, you know, hearing health is not always at the top of the list. And we know that's due to a lot of reasons, cost being one of them, but there's a lot of other things that go into those differences that we see. Part of it is access. Part of it is making connections. With your research with HEARS that I alluded to a moment ago, this study, as I understand it, worked at reaching individuals who needed hearing care. Could you talk a little bit about that trial? Sure. So the big picture of what the HEARS program is, is really trying to be very systematic of removing as many barriers as possible to getting hearing help um, for older adults specifically. So we're really talking here just very focused on age-related hearing loss, you know, bilateral, symmetric, you know, mild to moderate hearing loss is what we're really talking about here. And so how can we remove as many barriers as possible in terms of using low-cost, over-the-counter devices that are fit and get a basic orientation from a community health worker? And when I use the term community health worker here, I'm really talking about older adult peer mentors who are meeting one-on-one with another older adult with hearing loss and going through kind of the step-by-step fitting and orientation to an over-the-counter listening device and doing all of that in about one and a half to two hours. And every single step of both the study as well as, you know, the intervention, the program is done entirely within a community setting. So we have ongoing partnerships with affordable housing for older adults in Baltimore City and County, as well as senior centers throughout Baltimore City and County, very much working uh, in that setting. So at no point in time is anybody coming to see us in the clinic at Hopkins, but really all with 
within that setting of affordable housing and senior centers. And those are the individuals that we're working with on a daily basis in terms of the service coordinators, the director of services for some of these nonprofits to really understand and be able to reach people that we don't always see in our clinic. I want to ask you about how that outreach worked. But before we move on, uh, you mentioned over-the-counter devices. Just recently, we've seen the regulations for the -the over-the-counter hearing aids, those devices we expect to see on the shelves uh, later. But when you were doing this research, I assume these would have been personal amplification devices like PSAPs? Correct. Yes, yes. So we always use devices that we have tested within our research team. I work based out of the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health with individuals like Dr. Frank Lynn and Dr. Nick Reed. And Dr. Reed has done some outstanding work around personal sound amplifier products. Anything that we're using in our studies have all really been kind of vetted in terms of trying to be as older adult friendly as possible, using rechargeable batteries, that they've got good sound quality. Um, so we use very specific uh, devices in our in our studies uh, thus far, but are obviously really looking forward to and excited to be able to incorporate you know official over-the-counter hearing aids in the future. When you are conducting this outreach into the communities where you want to help address unmet hearing needs, how are you doing that? Are you training these community healthcare workers? Are you sending them literature? What's this process look like? Yeah. I think there's there's kind of two aspects to that question. And the first is really setting up the partnerships with the the nonprofits that provide affordable housing and then the senior centers and Baltimore City, you know, health department. Those organizations are really the starting point in terms of saying, hey, you know, we're interested in in thinking about hearing health for older adults. We think there's some needs what do you guys think? Do you also see needs and gaps in terms of hearing health for the older adults that you're working with? And so we started those conversations back 2013, 2014, and we've had now these long ongoing um, conversations and partnerships. We have a community advisory board that was set up at that time that includes representation from those organizations as well as representation from the residents and, and participants themselves. Then the older adult peer mentors, we worked to identify, you know, obviously very closely with the the affordable housing in terms of, you know, they know their residents and their older adults best in terms of identifying older adults who are really viewed as leaders in their communities. They then went through a very structured training process with two audiology supervisors who were their go-to and their teachers and their support team kind of throughout the entire process. So they had initial training and then we did ongoing continuing education you know, each month we'd be meeting as a as a whole team, all of the, the community health workers or the peer mentors, along with the audiology supervisors to kind of work through cases and say, what are you guys experiencing? How are we going to troubleshoot this? And so those are some of the ways in which we kind of selected and worked with the peer mentors along the way. Do you feel that you were able to reach people whose hearing needs would have otherwise been unmet? Yeah. A couple years ago now, we looked at the past... 30 years of hearing-related trials in the United States, and the vast majority of studies in this area are not even reporting race ethnicity. And of those that actually report race and ethnicity, only five of those studies actually had greater than 30% racial ethnic minority representation. So we know in the literature that we are not including racial ethnic minority older adults in our hearing-related trials. And so what I'll say then from the hearer's perspective, you know, we have greater than 40% representation in terms of 
the cohort who self-identify as African-American, which by far represents one of the largest studies to date, you know, who include African-American older adults with hearing loss. So I know it's it's certainly not everybody in the cohort, but the fact that we did get the, the representation we did. And then uh, we also have around two thirds of the cohort identify as low income. So really two populations that have been underrepresented in in hearing health related research. And, and so we're excited about that. What else did you learn? Did you get any qualitative response from some of these people who maybe wouldn't have had their hearing needs met otherwise? Yeah, we collected qualitative data from the participants as well as the peer mentors. And I think, you know, the peer mentors, you know, they really viewed themselves as as hearing healthcare professionals. I know we may not, you know, put them in that category of professional. We'd put them maybe in the category as a, of a paraprofessional, but they they definitely were very proud and excited to be giving back to their communities. And then for the participants, I think people were for for both the the peer mentors who had hearing loss themselves and them knowing their own hearing health journey, being able to to have people say, yeah, oh my gosh, I'm hearing birds for the first time, or wow, yeah, I can't hear my microwave again, um, or or to be able to say, yeah, my grandkids, I was just really struggling to hear them, but now I can hear them. I think being able to to make that connection and and be part of that journey for others is something that that was really special, I think, for all of us to, to see. And I mean, we all see in our clinical practice, but I think some of the older adult peer mentors, they would talk about the fact that they're like, yeah, I was another older adult teaching another older adult about this technology. It would be really different if I had to talk to my teenage grandson about this. Like he wouldn't maybe be as patient with me as, you know, an other older adult walking me through this piece of technology. A lot of people are really wary of, of medical institutions and, you know, for, for good reason in terms of historical injustices. And so working with somebody else who you're familiar with, who's from your own, you know, your own community, I think there's, there's a lot of potential trust that can be built a little bit more quickly than, you know, than myself coming in as a researcher and as a clinician. Do you think that using community healthcare workers, could it also lead to bringing people into the audiologist's office to meet maybe more complex hearing needs? Yeah, for sure. For sure. As an entry point. Yeah. For for individuals themselves, low income older adults or, or individuals who aren't always, you know, seen within hearing healthcare formally, I think their primary care doctors are often not saying, hey, you should go see the audiologist because they're making a lot of assumptions about you can't afford this anyways, so why I'm going to recommend this. Or they themselves, if they know that hearing aids are expensive, they themselves are like, yeah, no, that's really not a priority for me right now. So I think when left to sometimes their own devices, they they may not seek out that care because of assumptions, whether they're right, they're wrong, versus saying like, yeah, your hearing health is important. And I've experienced that myself. And I've experienced the benefits of, of using a device. And yeah, devices aren't always perfect. But here's also some basic ways in which to live well with hearing. And the device is just one tool of this. And if it doesn't work, there's other things that we can do and try, you know, beyond my expertise. You know, there's limitations in, in certainly PSAPs. There's going to be limitations in OTC devices. There's limitations, you know, in $10,000 hearing aids. But again, if that's that big picture, right, if we know we have consistently failed for decades now to serve the vast majority of older adults, and that's particularly true when it comes to low-income older adults and oftentimes racial ethnic minority older adults. And so we need to be thinking about how we can do additional things beyond our traditional clinic-based models. Models. Is there anything else you want to share about HEARS? 
I know that people who may be unfamiliar with community health workers or peer mentor models, I think it can sound sound daunting in terms of, oh man, this is a lesser quality of care that individuals are receiving. And and I, I certainly want to make sure that the people know and understand that that I, we're not looking to replace audiologists or ENTs or or any of the high quality care that happens in a clinic-based setting, but to really just be thinking about additional models of care of saying, how can we try to, to reach individuals that we haven't reached in the past? And I think that's one thing. I think it's been really enlightening and moving for me. We, we listen to and we record the peer mentors doing the intervention to ensure quality, to ensure fidelity. And so listening to those recordings, it's really astounding to hear the connection that older adults, in terms of when they have that shared lived experience, whether from the hearing loss or from where they, you know, they live and, you know, the lives they've kind of shared, you know, the way in which they connect about hearing loss and why it matters and why they should do something about it and and how it integrates into their lives is just so much different than how I can connect with my patient in the clinic, that I think there's real power in partnering with older adults or with community health workers. And I would encourage people to think about it as a partnership and not by any means a replacement. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What kind of things are you hearing people share? When I'm talking to an individual, like I, you know, they'll, they'll express their concerns about, you know, how does the hearing aid going to look like, what is it going to look like, you know, and there's a lot of unspoken things around stigma that, that I feel like we just don't always touch on. We kind of know it's there. We, we think about it, but you know, there's not a lot of direct things that I can say or do except encourage people to try it. Right. Versus, you know, when we hear some of the peer mentors kind of sharing their own stories to say, yeah, I have hearing loss myself. Yeah. I wear a device. Yeah, it was kind of weird at first. I am a little bit self-conscious about it. Like that's a very different kind of conversation that they can have with each other than me kind of either not talking about it or kind of skirting around the issue, but to directly address some of these things that the people are thinking, but they may not always raise, you know, to their clinician in that setting. Carrie Neiman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Carrie's work continues. She says she has plans to work with a couple different sites in the future, including expanded research in Maryland and the partnership with Rehabilitation Assistance in New Brunswick, Canada. She says one day, quote, audiologists may have their clinic-based practice, but then also be managing and supervising a subset of community health workers who are out in the field, end quote. And she says it's a potential tool to extend reach and expertise of audiologists. The 2022 Research Symposium on Hearing will be taking place at the ASHA Convention in New Orleans this November. Find a link and more information on the symposium and the speakers at on.asha.org podcast. Find interviews with past Research Symposium on Hearing speakers and this year's symposium organizer, Nick Reed, on our website. That's at on.asha.org podcast. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's Cultural Competence Check-Ins, a resource designed to help you reflect and grow, continue increasing your cultural competence, humility, and responsiveness. Learn more at on.asha.org cc. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.